Your brain's subconscious patterns are the reason you attach and bond to certain types of people. And today, I'm bringing you one of the world's most sought-after thought leaders to help you understand how to understand your attachment style and how to reprogram your brain to attach and connect to different people. Hello, guys. Welcome back to the Brain and Brand Show. Hi, I'm your host, Timothy Maurice, your behavioral psychology author. And I'm grateful for the journey you've taken with me to learn more about human behavior, how the brain works, and ultimately how to apply neuroscience and behavioral psychology to your life and your career. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Thais Gibson. She's the author of The Attachment Theory Guide. She's a public speaker and co-creator of the Personal Development School. Thais, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you. So before we kick off this conversation, I have a feature called Inside Your Mind. I'm going to pose seven questions to you. It's a really fun way for the audience to get to know how your mind thinks. Can we go inside your mind? Let's do it. Absolutely. Awesome. Here we go. Number one, audio book or printed book? Audio book. Heart or brain? By the way, these get increasingly more difficult. Ooh, heart. <laughs> heart. Yeah. Wow. You're going to yeah. have to explain that one quickly. <laughs> I mean, I think that the way I navigate life is to make very heart-based decisions and then to sort of reverse engineer the steps of what makes sense from a logical perspective. I would definitely say lead with my heart. And then I sort of like analyze what that really means from a logical perspective afterwards. Cool. All right. Number three, tea with milk or no milk? No milk. No milk. Huh. <laughs> Number four, romance movie or thriller? Oh my gosh, definitely romance because I I don't <laughs> like horror movies. <laughs> no horror movies, no scary movies, not my thing. <laughs> One of the things that's really interesting is that thrillers and horror movies are the biggest box office sellers of all time. Interesting. Because people suppress those instincts. You know, we all want to choke somebody, but it, we don't. So we get a chance always, to see it. I always thought people were just like addicted to the neurochemistry of stress and that they're not like conscious of how the movie's making uh, them yeah, feel. Yeah. That was my assumption. Cause I'm like, you know, like I don't like to sit in a room and just feel stressed for the whole time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's my, my take on horror movies, but it makes sense what you're saying. So it's probably a bit of both number, number five, when you are watching a romance or drama, are you more comfortable crying or laughing? Interesting. I will say as a caveat, I actually haven't even watched a real movie in years. I stick to documentaries. Oh, I wow. stick to, I'm, I get impatient, honestly, with things that are in very nonfiction. Um, but like, you'd have to really coerce me into sitting through a full movie about something made up. But um I would say, honestly, both. Comfortable laughing, comfortable crying, pretty expressive. <laughs> <laughs> I could do either one, depending. Um, All right, I'm going to let you off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to let you off the hook on this one. Okay. Opera or ballet? Um, I would say ballet. 
And the final one, number seven, yoga or Pilates? Pilates. I like to push uh, myself a little more. I get impatient with yoga. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind. Let's let's explore attachment. Why have you decided to dedicate so much of your life to attachment? You know, I, I guess I can tell like the backstory of how it happened. So what started off for me is I had a lot of questions about relationships. I definitely saw a pretty tumultuous relationship in my household as a kid, saw a pretty ugly divorce. Um, and I think I had a lot of questions about relationships to make a long story short, but then I also went through some personal struggles and I really had to understand like, why was I going through these struggles on a daily basis? What was happening? And I heard somebody say to me in a psychology class, once your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. And that to me was like, why aren't we talking about that? You know? And then I, you know, soon after found out your subconscious and unconscious mind collectively are responsible for roughly 95 to 97% of your beliefs, your thoughts, your emotions, your actions. And then your conscious mind is three to five. So I got really interested in learning about the subconscious, did a year long hypnotherapy course, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and actually started working with people in, in private practice and, um, was seeing like 40 or so clients a week for quite a while, specifically working on subconscious challenges they were facing. So old stories about themselves. I'm unworthy. I'll always be abandoned. I'll be trapped. I'm unlovable. You know, I'll be alone forever. These old sort of ideas that we adopt and then how to really recondition those ideas. So that was a big focus area, but it also went into like, you know, what are different people's unmet needs? You know, a lot of what we don't get met in childhood, we proceed to not meet in our own lives and we develop this sort of comfort zone around it. So as a really common example, um, if somebody had a, a childhood where there was a lot of emotional unavailability from their caregivers, that person ends up becoming emotionally unavailable to themselves and thus emotionally unavailable to others. And so I realized like our needs have this huge impact on how we function in the world and what our relationship is to them, along with our nervous system function, how we communicate, you know, we've all these patterns subconsciously. And I was really working with people on like these core wounds, the needs, emotional regulation, and then I revisited attachment styles. I learned about it at a very brief um, level, sort of introductory level in first year of university. And I returned to it and I realized, wow, each attachment style actually has a unique relationship to the painful stories that they're carrying, to the unmet needs that they have, to the way they try to emotionally regulate. And I realized by understanding somebody's attachment style, I kind of had this like deep awareness into them as a person. And then I knew what to focus on helping them do subconscious reprogramming and, and reconditioning work around. So I got really interested in that and um, started speaking about it more publicly a, a few years ago on, on YouTube. And it just everything seemed to really grow quite quickly. And here we are today. I have to say your YouTube page is, is popping. It's like... Um... <laughs> It looks like you enjoy it, do you? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love I love humans. I love people. I love hearing about their experiences. I love understanding. No, wait, 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 wait. Forget the deep do. stuff. I'm talking about the editing and who's doing all this stuff for you. I mean, these these are well-developed YouTube clips. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I will say, to be honest, I, I, I record seven a week, so I have a daily one and I kind of just pre-batch them. I do them on the fly. I do them organically because I, I think that that's how we kind of learn and grow. And and um, and then we have an editing team. We have a, a an okay. SEO team. Yeah, I have a, okay. we have a big team of people that work for our business at this point. Which okay. Is 
Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, you could see there's a lot of work that goes into them. And, and, you know, if you think about the, you know, I found one of the things I love to look at is to see which one, which ones are getting more traction. Are you surprised at your most popular videos? No. (laughs) Um, And the reason is- I think your most popular one's about avoidance. Yes, exactly. And the reason why it doesn't surprise me is because- avoidance come to the channel to learn about themselves and anxious attachments come to the channel to learn about avoidance. So it makes sense that everything's skewed in that direction because anxious preoccupied people, they want to know about their partner because they're very focused on others. And then the more avoidant leaning people want to understand themselves. So it just skews everything in the direction of dismissive avoidant attachment for sure. So let's break down the four attachment styles. So securely attached, anxiously attached, dismissive avoidance, and fearful avoidance. Break them down. Unpack them for us. Yeah. So we'll dive in. So um, basically, roughly 50% of the population is believed to be secure. There's some research demonstrating that it's actually skewing a lot less than that over the past 10, 15 years. Um, And securely attached people get a lot of approach-oriented behaviors in childhood. So they get a lot of you know, when they cry or express emotion as young children, the caregivers come towards them, try to soothe them, try to comfort them. As they get older and they learn to communicate their needs, their caregivers will validate those needs even if they can't meet them. So like, let's say a child's crying that they want candy at 11 p.m. The caregiver won't say, here's your candy at 11 p.m. They'll say, honey, you know, I know you want candy. I understand you love candy. You're if you eat candy this late before bed, you're gonna have a stomach ache, you're not gonna feel good tomorrow. So if you eat all of your breakfast, lunch, and dinner tomorrow, maybe a little bit after dinner tomorrow. So there's this idea and, and this imprinting that happens for a securely attached child that when I express emotion, good things happen. When I communicate my needs, I'm positively reinforced, even if the needs aren't always met. There's a room for negotiation. I'm I'm safe to rely on other people because I can express emotion to them and be seen and heard. And so children grow up with this natural sense of confidence and they grow up with this natural, healthy modeling for what it means to rely on other people and to create these interdependent relationships. So that's our securely attached. Then we have three insecurely attached styles. If you can think of them sort of on a continuum, at one side of the continuum, there's the anxious preoccupied. And at the far side of the other continuum, there's the dismissive avoidant. Our anxious preoccupied is the person who in childhood has a lot of inconsistency. A very common example would be parents are very loving, very kind, but they work a lot. So there's this constant like love is there and it feels taken away. Love is there. It feels taken away. Other versions of this could be that one caregiver is very warm and loving. The other is cold and withdrawn. And so that juxtaposition creates a sense of like perceived abandonment all the time. And so what happens is this child grows up and they come to deeply fear abandonment because they have all these positive emotional associations to connection, but they feel like it's constantly being stripped back and taken away from them. So our anxious preoccupied individuals in their adult relationships are the ones who you know, really terribly fear abandonment. They're always trying to maintain more proximity and closeness in their relationships. They may be the people who present as needy or clingy. Um, they really prioritize other people, sometimes lack a sense of self and self-identity, and they can be very codependent in their adult relationships. And unfortunately, as much as they want connection, that type of codependency often pushes people away and sabotages their relationships more than actually gets their needs met for what they're looking for. 
On the very flip side of the continuum, our dismissive avoidance are basically the exact opposite. So dismissive avoidance generally grow up with some form of childhood emotional neglect. Sometimes it's very overt, but the vast majority of the time it's kind of covert. So it won't be things, you know, foods on the table, there's structure and there's routine, but the parents are just not emotionally available to the child. They are not, you know, asking how the child's feeling. They're not communicating about feelings and emotions. If the child does express emotion, the caregiver may kind of distance themselves or even shame the child, say, come on, don't be a baby, toughen up, like these sorts of messages. And so this individual learns that this part of myself is shameful and wrong. So I shouldn't express it. I, sh- I shouldn't share it. And they grow up to basically become emotionally unavailable to themselves. They don't want to feel their emotions. They don't want to look at them. They don't want to go there, which obviously makes them emotionally unavailable to other people. And as adults, because they feel a lot of negative feelings around having been that vulnerable and then not gotten their emotional needs met when they did need those things in childhood, they basically want to create a lot of distance around that as an adult. So they will go, you know, when, when relationships start getting real, somebody starts getting close and they feel this vulnerability. That's a part of when we attach to somebody, they will try to sabotage distance flaw find, and they struggle to make long-term commitments because they're afraid of feeling like they did as kids. And then very last but not least, we have our fearful avoidance. Sometimes fearful avoidance is actually called the anxious avoidant um, because they basically have both sides of the attachment continuum. They are sort of the person as an adult that's like, come here, get close. And you get closer and are like, stay back. <laughs> it's like, come here. No, go away. No, come back. Go away. So they go back and forth between that anxious and avoidant side. And the root cause of that is actually because as children, they usually had conflicting ideas about love. So let's just say, for example, that a parent was an alcoholic. On one hand, maybe when that parent was sober or when they were drinking, sometimes they could be really kind and really loving and they had good experiences. But other times when that parent was drinking, they saw a lot of terrifying experiences and that parent was cruel or mean. Or if they had a parent who had narcissistic personality disorder, you know, sometimes that person can be really loving, really kind, really protective, other times terrifying. And so this person as an adult has these very conflicting ideas about the same thing, being love and attachment. And they get, they want it and then they get scared of it. And so they really are like a swinging pendulum going back and forth all the time. And it makes their relationships more turbulent and a little bit more volatile at times. So those are our four. Do you, do people evolve and shift in these or is it concrete foundational? Great question. So because attachment cells are basically the product of nurture rather than nature, they get conditioned into us through repetition and emotion and these different patterns that we adopt that essentially program our subconscious and unconscious mind. And so um, because we have principles of, of neuroplasticity and reconditioning that do exist, they can change. But at the same time, our subconscious mind is really fighting for that comfort zone. So for example, you could have somebody who is a child. They grow up as a securely attached style. At nine years old, they their parents go through a painful divorce and suddenly they become anxiously attached. But you could also see in reverse that somebody's slightly anxiously attached, but then you know a parent remarries and they have this really healthy modeling for relationships, these really healthy components. And so through that repetition and emotion of exposure to new experiences, it can actually repattern their attachment style to become more securely attached. So it is something that's there, um, but we have to have a lot of repetition and emotion of new experiences because naturally our subconscious wants to keep what's familiar. That's why you wrote the book. You want to sort of guide us through the various styles and how to evolve, right? Yes, the whole so, point of the book is to literally recondition your attachment cell to become secure. 
Got it. Let's talk about how these play out in relationships. So whether it's a relationship with a colleague or it's a relationship in your intimate personal life, how do you become patient with someone if you know they are fearful, avoidant, and they back and forth and there's a lot of turbulence happening side of the, your relationship with your colleague or your personal life? How do you work around it? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I think there's a few things, you know, number one, in a perfect world, each person is doing the work on their own attachment style to <laughs> to see healing and to see growth. But of course, we don't live in a perfect world or anywhere near it. And so it's it's a much more rare occurrence. So there's a few things that we can do that we do have control over, right? Number one, we don't want to try to control where we don't have a locus of control. We don't want to try to control somebody else, but we can control how we show up around that person. And if it's a fearful avoidant colleague where there's back and forth and hot and cold and up and down, one of the best things you can do is gently call them out on their behavior and tell them what you need instead. You know, hey, I notice sometimes X, Y, Z happens. You know, I notice sometimes that um, you sort of shift back and forth. For me in our working relationship, I really need consistency. Can we work on, you know, being more transparent and consistent going forward? Here's an example of what that looks like. So if we can really communicate and call somebody out, general, that works quite well for a fearful avoidant if it's done with care. And there's a huge difference for people and people get this wrong all the time between saying you are inconsistent or you're doing it wrong versus, hey, you know, I could really use some support from you in our working relationship around consistency. So if it's coming from what I need rather than what I'm judging you as, <laughs> it makes a huge difference. And the fearful avoidant is much less likely to personalize it. And in fact, to take it a step further, fearful avoidance respond extremely well to vulnerability and transparency. So the more you can say, hey, I'm feeling this way, or this is what's coming up for me. I need something from you. Fearful avoidance tends to be very supportive. But if you if you just say, you need to change, or I need this to be different, if there isn't a vulnerable space from where you're coming from, then they can tend to personalize it a lot more easily. So tell you, no one wants to be labeled. You can't go to someone and say, hey, look, you're an anxiously avoidant. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just want to love you you know, you know, how, how do you approach this conversation? Do you pull out your book and say, look, I want you to take this test? <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> it's a really good question. So it's funny because I actually find that different attachment cells respond very well to this. Um, anxiously attached individuals tend to want to know this. I think there's an element of validation for an anxiously attached person. If we really look at the difference between the conscious and the subconscious mind, it's really clear when you look at anxious preoccupied behavior, everybody's probably had a friend like this or has done this themselves. If they have anxious tendencies where they, they've gone, don't contact that person. They're not right for me. It's not meant to work. I'm going to delete their phone number. I'm not going to talk to them. And then Instead, you know, two days later, they find themselves tracking the phone number down and reaching back out or don't call them again. They're not answering. Don't send them another text. And yet they do it anyways. That's the difference between our conscious mind saying, I don't want to call them. It's not the right thing. And I can logically analyze that versus the subconscious saying, I have these programs and I want to maintain proximity and this is what I'm going to do. And I think that can feel really defeating for the anxious preoccupied person. So usually when anxious individuals hear that, oh, this is your attachment style, it's not your fault. There's something you can change and fix. They actually tend to really love it. They tend to take well to it, be really interested. It's very validating for them. 
fearful avoidance as well, they're very aware of their emotional turbulence. They are very aware. I was a fearful avoidant attachment style before I did the work to become secure. You feel your back and forth and up and down. And, and so when you learn, oh, I have this attachment style again, it's like, okay, there's steps I can take for healing. This is like my patterning. It's not me being chaotic all the time on purpose. And so there's a certain degree of validation there. Dismiss of avoidance tend to have the most sensitivity to criticism. So they tend to not like mm. hearing this. They tend to be like, mm. you're telling me that I'm defective or something's wrong with me. So generally for dismissive avoidance, what I would always give as advice to people is to say, hey, I'm learning about attachment styles. Everybody has an attachment style. Here are the four. This is what I think I am. What do you think you are? <laughs> and it's a good way generally of letting that person, you know, it's very, it's, it's pretty easy for most people to decipher once they hear some of those pain points and challenges sure. and what childhood looks like. So once you give that information, usually they can do that rather than it being on the other person and it's not received as a criticism. Let's go a little bit deeper. Let's talk somatics and mind body connection and how trauma gets gets sort of programmed into the body and how that influences your attachment style. Now you've touched on this quite a bit and it looks like you've done a lot of research on this. Do people underestimate what's happening in the body? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I think that there is, you know, this distinct connection between our mind and body and really they can't even be seen as separate in my opinion. Um, and if you look at different things that happen, you know, if we look at, I have this acronym I often give to people who are newer to this information. Um, I know you're not, but maybe, you know, some of the audiences and I call it our BTEA and our NEA. So when we look at pain and suffering, okay, the vast majority of things that, that um, when we look at just pain first before suffering, because there's a, a fairly distinct difference pain comes from unmet needs when we're talking emotional pain specifically. And that's actually not a bad thing. Like if I move to a new country as somebody who has a need for connection and who cares about people and connecting with people, if I feel this pain of feeling disconnected, that's a feedback mechanism. That's actually telling me something um, to, to, Hey, go get your needs met. Like you're feeling lonely, go meet people, go get your needs met. It's actually helping me pivot and adapt. And that's how we as human beings have survived for a long time. But when we have unmet needs, it produces an emotional response and our emotions are made up of neurochemical reactions. So then we have all of these, you know, this neurochemistry that's sort of pulsing throughout our body that can activate, you know, rest and digest nervous system if it's calming or sympathetic nervous system if it's distressing for us. So right away, like what our emotional experiences there affects our body because it, it affects what's, what form of nervous system we're in. And it affects all of the neurochemistry being sent throughout our body based on our emotional state. Now, neuroscience, a neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio actually proved, I believe it was in 2004, um, that every single decision we make is based on our emotional state. So even people who think they're very logical, rational thinkers are still making emotionally based decisions at the tipping point. And then they're just quick to rationalize or justify those things through logic. So we have to understand when it comes to pain emotionally, when we have unmet needs, it's going to produce emotions and it's going to determine our actions. So that's NEA, needs, emotions, actions. And of course, those emotions are made up of that neurochemistry. Then the thing that produces suffering is what we make that mean, okay? So let's pretend I move to a new country. And instead of going, oh, I have an unmet need to make new friendships, let me go out and meet people. If instead I go, I'm gonna be alone forever. Nobody likes me, that's why I can't make friends. <laughs> if I start telling these 
painful stories about myself, which are almost always based on painful, unprocessed experiences that imprinted me in childhood that I gave meaning to, right? Let's pretend that I struggled to make friends as a child. Then I might've made that mean I'm disliked. I'll be rejected, right? So then when we have these beliefs about ourselves, beliefs will produce thoughts, right? So let's say the really obvious one is if I believe I'm not good enough, I'll start thinking thoughts like I'm not interesting enough. I'm not fun enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not insert, you know, fill in the blank enough. And these beliefs and thoughts also have the capacity to produce emotional reactions, which are also made up of neurochemical reactions, which again, go throughout our entire body. And then we'll also drive our decision. So we have beliefs and thoughts produce emotions and actions along with neurochemistry. So do our unmet needs. And so there's a deep interaction between our mind and body. And when we have these beliefs activated or these unmet needs activated, if we have past painful experiences around them, that information can very much be stored in terms of how we are used to experiencing these reactions physiologically in our body. So we may, for example, feel the the pain of feeling not good enough as you know this the the tightness in our stomach or uh, a heaviness in our chest and torso so we actually have places that our body's used to neurochemically and physiologically feeling these things that can be rehashed and then of course drive our decisions you know one of the things that concerned me is the biological decision making curve so I think fundamentally different when I'm 16 versus 22 versus 42 versus 82, right? So the emotional needs of a person who is, let's say, 21, 22, you're in university and your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, which is the CEO region of the brain. And this person is less likely to even interrogate on average as a person who is 40 having the same challenge. So how do we communicate? I mean, for our younger professional listeners who are like, look, this just feels good to be with this person. It just feels good to be around this person. Even if they, they know that person is destructive, I'm far less likely to interrogate that relationship and my attachment style because my feelings are a priority over my conscious cognitive capacity? So this is an amazing question. I think there's a much deeper story that's happening um, when these things happen to us. So when we, you're absolutely right, like our prefrontal cortex is not developed at that age and, and we have the ability to more consciously approach things um, as we get older and as we move through these different experiences, we have the, the ability to make more conscious, rational decisions overall. But it's still never going to be something that outwills or overpowers the subconscious mind and these programs. So we have to start instead. I find the most constructive approach to be using our conscious mind to help rework these subconscious patterns that are not working. And we have to ask ourselves the question, no matter how old you are, no matter how right? old you are. Exactly. Okay. And, and so this is where we have the most power for change, I would say. And that's why we, I like to approach it this way. So when you look at somebody and let's say you use that exact example, which is a great one, conscious mind says, I know they're not good for me. I know they're destructive. Subconscious keeps going back. Well, why we do that. I often give this analogy that, um, 
when we have a subconscious comfort zone of familiarity that we already have in the relationship to ourselves, not only is this the biggest major factor that drives what we're attracted to in others and what we'll invest in, but because of that, our alarm bells will not go off in the same way. So I saw a lot in my, my private practice that women, for example, who I worked with, who came out of really abusive relationships, and this goes for men as well, but I had a a group of women for quite some time that I worked with who came out of relationships with narcissists, right? Who were true narcissists, like narcissistic personality disorder, not the thing that people throw around. And what I found (laughs) with every single one of these women without exception is that they first were extremely harsh and cruel and quite um, abusive verbally in the relationship to themselves. So they would tell themselves in their internal dialogue, I'm such a stupid idiot. They would, you know, say all these things so mean to themselves. So when they would start seeing that pattern mirrored to them in their relationship with somebody else, their conscious mind would say, this isn't healthy. This is destructive. And the subconscious would say, but it's familiar and familiarity equals safety, which equals survival. And I'm going to keep going back. And so often what's happening is when we want to actually have the power to change, we have to first look with our conscious mind where we can observe and say, well, what are the things that I'm drawn to in this person that represent the unhealed parts of me? And how can I work to repattern those parts of me so my subconscious comfort zone is no longer attracted to that person and want to keep investing in these types of situations? And so what I found is when women could actually really work on their different core wounds and their different pain points and relationships, so when they weren't beating themselves up all the time, putting themselves down, when they learned to exercise more compassion, more patience, and awareness in their internal dialogue and did this repetitively as a conscious habit day in and day out until it patterned into the subconscious mind. Suddenly they would feel very different around that person when they did it and they would want to retract and withdraw and take space. And eventually they would be in a position to leave. And that doesn't just apply to our romantic relationships. That's one analogy that applies to our friendships, family relationships, co-working relationships. When we want to change a pattern, we have to change it within ourselves first. What if you are buried in deadlines, you're buried in priorities at work and so forth, and it becomes very difficult to find the time to start repatterning, patterning, <laughs> and finding the time? Like, are there ways to set up systems around you, put up affirmations, get accountability partners? What are the systemic ways to be able to hack? your involvement with repatterning your mind, patterning your mind? I love that question. So um, on one note, I would say we always can find the time somehow. Usually people find the time to watch television, (laughs) scroll through social media, (laughs) but I'll come back to that part. (laughs) Um, So so there are definitely systems. I'm not a big affirmations fan and I'll tell you why. So the conscious mind speaks language. So the conscious mind, you know, here, like actually speaks like, let's say my native language is English. The subconscious speaks through emotion and imagery. So if I say the very obvious example of this is if I say to you, whatever you do, do not think of the pink elephant, like your subconscious flashed a pink elephant, your conscious mind heard do not, but it didn't Mm. stop your subconscious from doing anything. Mm. So when we try to just recondition through affirmations, we're basically trying to do work at the conscious level of mind, right? We're using language and our, our limiting beliefs our painful old stories about ourselves and wounds. They're not at the conscious level. They're subconscious. There are programs. And so when we want to do reprogramming, one of the, the easy tools that I often give for people is called auto-suggestion belief reprogramming. 
And essentially what you want to do is you want to start by getting yourself into a suggestible state. Suggestible states are when you're producing mostly alpha brainwaves. So if you've ever seen somebody watching television and they're like in the zone of the television and you're trying to get their attention and you're like, Bob, Bob, and Bob's like not answering, he's glazed over, he's like in the television. That's actually because um, television tends to make us produce alpha brainwaves. You're actually in a light state of trance. So you're also in that space after meditation, after breath work, the first hour when you wake up, as long as you don't drink coffee, and the last hour before you go to bed, you're more suggestible. So we want to like capitalize on those times, number one. Number two, we want to take whatever painful story we keep telling to ourselves. I'm I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'll be alone forever. I'll be abandoned. I'm trapped. I'm unworthy. You know, these, these old narratives that we run, that's a belief. We want to find the exact opposite. So if it's, let's just for really simplicity's sake, I'm not good enough. I am good enough for the job that I want. Okay. So what we have to do is we have to speak to that, not just in language, but in emotion and imagery, because that's the language of the subconscious mind. Well, what is the container of emotion and imagery? Memories. If you ever think of an old memory, if you think of a time that you felt really proud of yourself, or if you were to say, okay, this is my favorite childhood memory, and you started retelling it, you would smile. You would feel the emotion. If if people tell their least favorite childhood memories, they their body language closes. They react physiologically to that. So, And if you look, if you watch when you recall a memory, in your mind's eye, you actually see the images. So what I get people to do for belief reprogramming is take that old painful belief, do this in the morning or evening. So you have a system. It's in your morning routine or evening routine. It's also mm-hmm. when you're most suggestible. And then we say, okay, what's the opposite of this belief? I'm not good enough. I am good enough. 10 pieces of memory every day for roughly 21 days. That's when we start to really fire and wire these pathways. They get in there and you can say, I'm good enough because I showed up this way at work today. I'm good enough because I graduated from this place or I went and and got the certificate. And we have to give ourselves the memories, the more emotion that's in those memories and the more imagery, like the more specific we can get, the deeper this programming runs. And when we can really leverage that, we can take years of believing these painful things about ourselves. I'll always be abandoned. I'll always be seen as not good enough. We can take years of all of that and we can actually rewire them using this tool. My colleague, Dr. Tara Swart, uh, MIT, she's uh, wrote the book, The Source, and she looked at the neuroscience of uh, vision boards and action boards. and, And basically what you just did was simplify you took the jargon and the neuroscience out and basically simplify a lot of the reasons why action boards and vision boards work. You know, you've got an emotional story linked to these images and you're seeing it often and you often see it before you go to bed. You see it in the morning, even mm-hmm. if you're not consciously thinking about it, you're repatterning in the, in, the, in the conscious mind. Do you have a vision board? Yes. I do have a vision board. You I actually do. just came down to Austin for the winter, so I don't have it here. I had one in, in uh, Canada where <laughs> I was living, and I'm going to have to make a new one here. <laughs> oh, wow. What what are a couple of things on your vision board? Um, So one of the first big things is to scale our business more. Um, really passionate about that. And really because of the impacts, like we're really seeing a lot of beautiful impacts. So I actually have like the numbers of what I want our business to reach. Um, oh, wow. I have uh, one thing that I'm going to try to do next year is have our first child um, with my husband. So, so have sort of a, a vision of that, wow. um, a vision of what I'm trying to create is financial freedom in my life so that I'm not um, dependent on 
working sure. in order to have a passive income. So that is a 2024, 2025 big goal. Um, so those are some of those, those big things on there for sure. Nice. Let's let's just kind of wrap up and talk a little bit about starting points for this. Like, you know, if a person is listening, they're just like completely inspired as I am. And they're like, okay, I'm assuming I need to figure out what, what's my attachment style and then what? And then you want to start with working on your old attachment wounds. So I can actually give them to listeners. So our, our anxiously attached individuals, their big core wounds tend to be, I'm not good enough. I will be abandoned. I will be alone. I am excluded. I will be rejected. I will be disliked. You'll know these are your core wounds because these are your biggest pain points in life and relationships. Like exclusion stings for anxious, preoccupied people. You take a dismissive avoidant and exclude them. They're like, nice. I get to spend time alone. Right. So, so you know that these are your wounds. <laughs> they hurt. You feel them. They land. Dismissive avoidance, their big core wounds are I will be trapped. I will be helpless. I will be powerless. I am weak if I'm vulnerable. Um, I am stupid. They have this, I, I don't even like using that word, but they really have this like fear of not getting something right the first time. They put a lot of pressure on themselves there. And they tend to have a big wound around criticism. So they feel shamed if they're criticized. So those tend to be really big wounds that when the, the dismissive avoidant works to reprogram them using that auto-suggestion tool we talked about, they see so much momentum and growth. Fearful avoidance tend to share some of the anxious and avoidance. So they have, I will be abandoned. I'm not good enough, but they also tend to have the, I'll be trapped or helpless or powerless. And they also struggle to feel like they will not be betrayed. I'll be betrayed as a big core wound. Um, and they also struggle to feel like they are safe. So they can struggle to feel like safe in relationships, safe making commitments. So I am unsafe as a big core wound. So reprogramming core wounds is huge and is, will create an enormous amount of healing for each attachment style using that exercise. And then a second thing you can do is you can ask yourself the question, when these wounds come up, what do I need? Do I need validation? Do I need reassurance? Do I need space and time? Do I need to know my freedom and autonomy are safe? Like what are those big things that I need? And those are the things we want to start communicating and sharing with people in our lives. Because when we do, we give them the information they need to see and hear us. And so much of healing in these interpersonal dynamics is about me doing the inner work and me conveying things that I need from people in my life too. It's not just all me or only relying on other people. It's a nice um, sort of like a, a sharing of both. It's that's what interdependency is. I can meet my needs and I can lean on you sometimes. I, I feel fully empowered to do both. It's not just me in isolation or not just codependently relying on everybody but myself. I want to close this conversation with trauma bonding. Mm. You know, how we sort of unconsciously bond around trauma and why this is becoming a more increasingly more important conversation? I love this question. These are great questions. So um, there are three big things that drive attraction at the subconscious level. So the first thing is we are attracted to trait variety. Okay. So biologically it makes perfect sense. You know, if thousands of years ago, we we're out there trying to survive and you're really smart and I'm really strong and we pair up we have a greater chance of surviving. So we have this biological driver of like, we're attracted to people who basically express our repressed traits or traits that we don't feel like we have. So that's a big thing. And obviously that can sort of lay a, a bit of a foundation for the potential for a trauma bond, but it's really when we get into the next two things. We are also very much attracted to people who meet our deeply unmet needs from childhood. 
And usually these things on some level we are starving for. So we're willing to really filter out those red flags when these things are met. And an example of this can be if somebody felt really unseen as a child, I see this a lot with people, um, and somebody comes into their life and they start dating and they make them feel very seen. If this is something they were starving for for a very long time and somebody meets it, it has a deep ability to imprint us. And what happens is we can hunger so much for a particular need that we're willing to filter out the criticism. We're willing to filter out the inconsistencies and and the unhealthy patterns because we're so hungry for this. What that almost always represents is actually learned helplessness in the relationship to ourselves to meet those needs. So I wouldn't be starving for it so much if I actually could see myself, get more present with myself through meditation, through journaling. So it's interesting that way. But then this is the big one. We are attracted to that subconscious comfort zone. So we are literally attracted to people who mirror back to ourselves, how we treat ourselves. In my opinion, that's actually the foundation of trauma bonding, which is relationships. One of their beautiful components is that relationships will show you to yourself. There's a a beautiful Rumi quote, and it says, if I'm irritated by every rub, how will I ever be polished? And Mm. it's sort of depicting this, Everything that gets under my skin is showing me to myself. It's showing me where I have healing to do or work to do. It's a beautiful feedback mechanism and nobody will trigger us like our closest relationships. So when we trauma bond, what's usually actually happening at a deep root cause level is that we are getting into a position where somebody is treating us in an unhealthy way that actually usually represents a pattern of familiarity to us, either because we saw some of those patterns in childhood and or we still enact those patterns in the relationship to ourselves. And if you combine that with somebody meeting just one or two deep unmet needs from childhood, then we can sacrifice all sorts of things to try to stay in that trauma bonded relationship. And so we'll put ourselves through the ringer just for one or two things, especially if there's that element of familiarity. And so when we see these and we're like, hey, this isn't good for me and our conscious mind knows better and we want out, we have to take the you know, it's sort of like a crisis and an opportunity, right? We have to be able to say, this is a a really tough thing, but I'm here for a reason. Like my subconscious is drawn to this person for a reason. What is this showing me about myself in terms of needs that I'm hungering for that I actually have to start meeting in the relationship to myself? And what is it that's so familiar about this person that I'm seeing as unhealthy? My conscious mind knows their criticism is unhealthy, but it's, it's somehow familiar to me. I'm willing to stay Well, it's probably because I'm that self-critical towards me. So I have to clean that up. So it's always a mirror into yourself. And although it's really painful, there's actually tremendous growth that comes out of that awareness and really reconditioning those patterns. Your personal development school must be rocking. Like people (laughs) must be signing up left, right, center. How do people engage your uh, school? Thank you. Um, So there is um, the personal development school. I have free content on YouTube. I put it almost every day. Um, Personal development school dash Chayese Gibson. And then um, personal development school.com is our website. And actually on that, people can take a free attachment style quiz and it gives them their attachment style report. It tells you your big core wounds, your unmet needs, the work you can start doing. Um, So that's another really great place to to kick off. Just repeat that website again, where they can explore their attachment styles. It's personaldevelopmentschool.com. Oh, wow. How did you get that? Did you register? I don't know like, about real lucky. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, incredible. Wow. Yeah, well, thank you. you so much for your research, your service to this cause, the Attachment Theory Guide book. I really, really appreciate you. You're an absolute incredible rock star. I, th- I feel like probably the thing I've enjoyed most 
is just how much you enjoy sharing this and that it comes off as non-judgmental. It comes off as just really loving and embracing. And not one time that I feel like you're condescending. I sometimes we have authors on who almost, you know, it's almost as like it's almost like people are, are you know, there's something wrong with them because they don't know this stuff. And you're wow. just sharing it with pure light. And I really, really appreciate you, Tice. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. These were such amazing, thoughtful questions. I can see your expertise through your questions as well. And and uh, really appreciated this conversation. Guys, please share this episode with someone you care about. I appreciate you as always, as I said in the onset, for taking this journey with me. Until next time.